Um, it's a privilege to, to be here, a great joy to be able to preach. I'm actually on vacation, like Tim mentioned, and he asked me if I would preach, and I said, well, I'm not sure, and then he threw a couple of Bible verses at me, so I was pretty much forced to do that. <laughs> but I'm happy to do so. It's my second sermon in English. I usually preach in German. Um, my last sermon in English was like, I think, six years ago at the ceremony, at the marriage ceremony of my uncle, Uncle Steve. So when I was asked to, to preach to you, I was thinking, well, what, what could I say? The problem is, in, in, like, everyone here knows John Piper, so I can't really, you know, listen to a message on desiring God and just duplicate it and just give it to you. In Switzerland, that's okay, because they don't really, know, they don't really listen to English sermons, so it was quite a challenge. And so I, I took a sermon that I, I, I held a couple of months ago, and I sort of transformed it, gave him some extra points, and, and put, put a sermon together. And I would like to talk to you about trusting God and looking at Psalm 146, uh, the verses 1 to 7. But before we, we dig into into Psalm 146, I would like to give you like an outline, an introduction to the book of Psalms. Now we all know that Psalm 1, one of the most famous Psalms, starts with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now that's a very um, profound and important verse, verse 2. He delights on the law of the Lord, and he meditates in his law day and night. And that's what we are supposed to do when you read the book of Psalms. You're supposed to meditate on God's word. The Hebrew word for law here is Torah, which means the five book of Moses, but also the whole Old Testament. And for us Christians, it means the whole, the whole Bible. So we're supposed to meditate on the word of God, not just read it as a newspaper. It shouldn't be just informational for us, but have this transforming character. It should grip us. It should touch our hearts so we can strengthen our faith. So let us, let, let us do that. Let us meditate on the word. Let us do that not just when we hear a sermon, but also in our quiet time in the mornings, and when, we, um, when we're at work and we think about God and, and his words. And it's also interesting, Psalm 1 um, gives us two kinds of people at the very start. In, in verse 1 and 2, in the following verses, it says, There is the wicked man, the scoffer, but there's also the godly man, the man who trusts in, in God. And... When you get through the Psalms, you get through Psalm 146. 146 is actually the psalm, one of the psalms that starts the so-called small Hillel. And the small Hillel means it ends with, with worship. The last couple of psalms are, are um, intro, um, introducing us to worship and tell us we sh that meditation and everything that we read in the Psalms and in the Bible should lead us to worship God. So the last couple of Psalms is, is worship. And so that's, that's my goal. That's what I'm, I've prayed for 
that when we read Psalm 146, these verses, that it will lead us into worshiping God, that we can trust him and worship him more profoundly than when we came in this, this afternoon. So let us read Psalm 146, verses 1 to 7. I'm reading from the ESV. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he who help, whose help is in God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. My first point is, is worship. So you'll, you'll get the outline on, on the PowerPoint. We are encouraged that we should worship God. And it starts with, uh, to us, um, a word that we all know, hallelujah, a well-known word to us. And hallelujah is actually an imperative in Hebrew. It means praise the Lord. So the psalmist invites the congregation, but not only the congregation, but also the individual to join him in worship. And he says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So it's, it should be a worship that's not just that you utter um, words with your lips, but it comes from your heart. It's rooted in your heart. You are profoundly um, interested, and, but also you love the Lord. So you worship him with your innermost being. And the Psalms give us, actually, different kinds of worship. Like, when we talk about worship, we, all, we, we usually think of worship like the one we did before, that we stand and lift our arms and sing praises to God. And the Psalms actually have a lot of worship psalms like that. But the Psalms are, are a lot more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may know him, a theologian, a German theologian, who have fought the Nazis, um, he said that the Psalms are, are very interesting. They, they describe every human experience that there is. They describe, um, they describe grief, pain, hard circumstances, and sorrow. And what those people felt, like David, for instance, um, it's not just David's words, it's not just human words, but they're also... They, they're also God's words. That's why we find them in the Bible. So we can be encouraged to actually speak these words when we feel pain and sorrow and grief. Uh, John Calvin, the reformer, he says that the Psalms are like a mirror of the soul. You, you get to know David in a different way. It's practical theology, day-to-day -day theology that we learn from the Psalms. And so worship has, has, uh, has different 
Um, it looks like it looks differently when we read the Psalms. It can be it can be singing. It can be expressed through happiness, but also when we feel pain, hard circumstances, and sorrow. But in the end, we are encouraged to to feel this peace and this joy, this inner joy in our hearts that no matter what the circumstances are around us, that we know it is well with my soul, like we sang it before in this great, amazing, um, wonderful hymn. And the Psalms end, the book of Psalms end with, with this worship and continually saying, I know, I, I, I don't understand the circumstances, I know there's a lot of pain and grief in my life, and yet God will make it right. And that is actually what worship really means, what, what the Jews are also interpreted into the Psalms, that worship can be, it's not only singing, but also trusting in God in difficult circumstances. And I, I always found it wonderful to, to actually have a God who encourages us, who encourages us to, to sing worship and to feel joy and peace. Because it's not something that God had to do. He could have ordained it differently. Him, he having all this power and might and all his resources, he could have said, well, I'll save you, but for the rest of your life and in all eternity, you'll be scared of me or you'll fear me. But God said, no, he wants us to be joyful in him. This uh, summer, I could attend four weddings. A lot of my friends got, got married when I came together with the couple to, to look at their vows and to, to plan the wedding ceremony, um, they said they would like to speak their vows on their own. And one word was just omnipresent in those vows. It was joy. Every couple said to one another, I'm happy, I'm, I'm grateful, I'm thankful, I'm full of joy that I can finally get to marry the one that I love. No one said, well... I'm marrying you because it makes a lot of sense and my mom told me to do so but no it was it was this great joy to be able to spend your rest of your life with the partner that you what you love it was just one guy who went a bit off I should have probably read his vows before he held them 300 people I'm standing between in front between him and his wife and instead of talking about her he started talking about her family about her father about her uncle and how they have the same job and how he felt connected to them and it's I didn't really know what to do but he also <laughs> expressed joy and I know that he he deeply loves her so I let him speak so the interesting is that, that God wants us to be joyful in him and to have this profound trust in him. And that brings me to my, to my next point. If you read verse 1 and 2, you might think that after, him, after the psalmist telling us that we should sing God, God praises, that we should be joyful in him, he will go directly to the the reasons why we should praise God. And the reasons come in verse 5 to, to 10. He gives us 10 reasons why, and we'll look at three later on. But before he gives those reasons, um, the verse, verses 3 and 4 um, are written. And what do verses 3 and 4 say? Verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. 
Now, this is key to understanding what true worship really is. I wrote in the title there, worship means you trust. And the Bible connects joy, true joy and worship with trust. Because whatever you put your trust in is that what you actually worship. And the Hebrew term used here for trust in verse 3 can also be translated with you depend on or you rely on that. And so if we think about that, we're actually all worshipers in a sense. We all put our trust into something. We all have something in our lives that gives us joy, that gives us ultimate satisfaction. And the, the most important question you can ask yourself is, what do you put your trust in? What gives you this joy, this ultimate satisfaction in your life? And verse 3 is very clear. Put not your trust, or you can say your joy, in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. And why is that? Verse 4 says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, in the West, especially in Europe, but also in America and Canada, we have and we have been influenced by the Enlightenment very greatly. I see that especially in high school. All the books they have to read in German class, in English class, it's all about actually trusting man, trusting yourself. And this idea is, is not just 250 years old. It goes back to, uh, to the ancient um, Greek uh, philosophers. For instance, Protagoras was one philosopher and he was famous for the sentence he said in, in Latin, homo mensura, which means man is in the center. And Pico della Mirandola, a, philosoph a philosopher from the 14th century, he actually knew this philosophical guideline uh, in the, during the Renaissance. And the Enlightenment took up on this uh, worldview and made it as the number one worldview that would overrule all other, other worldviews. And in high school, every one of us has to read books from the philosopher, from a German philosopher called Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. I don't know if, if you know him here in Canada. And Lessing, he lived in the 18th century, and he wrote a hundred paragraphs on the development of mankind, how mankind has developed and has made progress and he says in these hundred paragraphs that God first chose um, a simple and actually quite dumb nation and calls them, you know, the Jews and gave him rules to follow and says that was us in a, in a, in a stage where we were all children and minors. We all had rules that we should follow. And that's why he gave him Ten Commandments. Later, Jesus came, who was the first um, man who's, who has um, had the Enlightenment. And he didn't give us rules, but said, you have to love your neighbor. So love was the key uh, phrase that, that Jesus used. And now, uh, Ephraim Lessing says, we are in the 17th, 18th century. We're that far that we can decide ourselves what is love, what is good, what is bad, so we don't need God anymore. And he, he gave out these 100 paragraphs with a different name because it was so 
uh, horrible for the people to, to read that. They said, it's not possible. We can't just cut out God out of, um, out of our society. But eventually, his paragraphs uh, were used in schools, at universities, and today we, we have the outcome of that. We don't need God anymore. We, are not the, we don't need God to tell us what is good, what is bad. We, are learn, we have learned to trust in ourselves. And in the early 50s, French philosophers like Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre introduced us to the philosophy of existentialism, which basically says there is no metaphysical essence, there is no God, but just your own existence. And you're allowed to say what is right, what is wrong. You have to trust yourselves, you trust your capabilities, trust your own decisions. And after that, 68 movement um, came, free law, free sex, rock and roll. And today, well, I actually like rock and roll. That wasn't a bad outcome. But um, everything else is this existential um, guideline for living. And when I teach ethics at, at church or mainly at, at high school, I always hear my students say, well, everyone can decide for themselves what is good and what is bad. And you get to the issue of abortion or homosexuality. It's always you decide, you decide, you can trust your own decisions. But the Bible has, gives us a different and far more accurate description of life and of we as people are. And it says here we're not to trust ourselves. We're not to trust in, in a son of man, in other human beings. Why? Because there is no salvation found in them. And then it describes every human being, every one of us who sits in here very accurately in verse 4. And you can read and, and, and put yourself in that position. Every one of us will, will um, experience how our breath departs and how we will return to earth. And on that very day, our plans will perish. We all have a day where we got born. But we see on every gravestone, there's not just a date of birth, but there's also a date where we will um, die and perish. And from 100 people, 100 people um, die. But what I find so encouraging is that the Bible doesn't stop here. The psalmist doesn't stop here. Like we've read verse 1 and 2, which are about worship, about happiness. And so verse 3 and 4 are, could sort of pull us down make us uh, depressed, but that's not what the, uh, the writer intended. The Bible doesn't want to make us depressed or pull us down. It just wants to give us an accurate view of ourselves. And that's what John Calvin did in his institutes. He said, before you can actually know God and understand God and his greatness, you have to understand what your posi position is as a human being. And you are not God. You don't accurately know what is right and wrong. Um, and you need salvation, you, and you need salvation not just from other people, um, but you need to be saved from yourself. Why? Because when you put your trust in yourself, when you put your trust in your own capabilities, you will fail. You're not the master of your life. You never have been. Like, I, I've noticed many times when I... Uh, I work with, with the youth at our church. We went to uh, Mol Moldavian, Moldova, the poorest country in Europe. And you don't have any running water. You have no electricity. You have nothing there that you have in Switzerland. And so I tend to get very cranky. 
And uh, the guys, they, they got to know me, not in the way that Tim got to know me, but different, uh, cranky uh, Stefan. And, they, and so I, I failed them. And so everyone that you actually love and spend more time together, you, you, you fail them. And I've also known uh, within my own life that my capabilities are very limited. I can learn for tests. I can do whatever, uh, a lot of things, but I'm, I'm limited. My body is limited. And even though I'm, I'm just only 30, um, for some of you it's like really old, for other of you it's, it's really young, <laughs> I've noticed that my body actually, I'm stronger than Tim, that's true, but uh, <laughs> there's other people, young guys at our church, they, they do even more pull-ups, more push-ups. And so I've noticed how my body slowly but steadily actually is, um, is, is getting weaker. And so the Bible is, 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 is speaks truth to us because it's, it's God's word. And, and God wants to be truthful, wants to, wants to tell us the truth and encourage us. And this verse 4, um, I've experienced many times as well with, with colleagues and friends of mine. Um, a, a friend of mine I played hockey with, he came home one evening and he had a heart failure after practice and he died. He was healthy, no signs of, of any struggles really in his life physically. He was only 22. I recently drove with a middle-aged woman uh, to, to the train station. She brought me to the train station and she said she had planned to go on a hike in the Swiss mountains, as most Swiss people do. Um, with her husband. And so they got all their gear together. She went out into the car, waited for him. He never showed up. She goes inside. Heart failure, heart attack. He died. A friend of mine, he works for the Swiss radio. He was only 13 and his brother was around 12. And they were sitting um, at, in the couch with their father watching television when suddenly the father had a stroke and died in front of them. I, I sometimes visit the senior center from our church, from other churches, and I've met one man. He was a um, chemist, super smart, developed medicine in Switzerland. When I met him there, he could barely walk or talk. Another man I met was an engineer, well-respected, wealthy, and he couldn't even eat by himself. And so you see verse 4 gives us an action, an, a precise description what life, uh, how life can end and how life is when we, when we get older. But as I said, it's not, it doesn't stop here. It wants to encourage us. And Psalm 146 actually wants to, to get us to, to worship God. So instead of putting our trust in ourselves, what should we put our trusts in? And verse 5 to 8 give, give us, um, give us the, the answer. Verse 5, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And now I want to look at three reasons why we can put our trust in God. And the first reason is verse 6. God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. So we have this ultimate sovereign God who made heaven and earth. And if you look at this verse from the perspective of a, uh, of a Jew and of someone who meditates on the word of God, a Jew would immediately go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created heaven and earth and created us as imago Dei, as his image. 
We are made to, to find our joy in God. And you probably all know this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, this amazing book that I've been reading. He says at the very beginning, we as creatures are far too easily pleased. We seek joy. We put our trust in, in food and sex and everything on, on this earth here. But God wants us to give us ultimate pleasure, exceeding pleasure that exceeds this life, that, exceeds in, that is, um, will, will be eternal and this joy is when we, as the created, know our creator, God himself. And this God has made us, and he has made heaven and earth. And I have a picture here of, of uh, one galaxy. And I don't know if you know how many galaxies there are in, um, in the universe. Um, scientists say between 100 and 200 billion galaxies. And in every galaxy, there's like... Uh, roughly 100 billion stars. So if you combine um, 100 billion times 100 billion, you'll know how many stars there are. And it's, I don't know how to say this number in English. So it's just one with 22 zeros. So this universe is just massive. It's, it's huge. And God actually made this universe. And he made it how? Through, the, through his spoken word. He made it ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing here. And we read in Genesis 1 and 2, God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be stars, and there were stars. God has this unbelievable power that through his words, he can create. And we read in Psalm 147, just the next psalm, verse 4, he, God, determines the numbers of the stars. He gives them their names. I must confess, I, I don't even know all the names from our church, even though I've been there for four years. <laughs> well, they, they come and go, the people. But I have a hard time remembering um, all the names, and there are maybe 200. I have a hard time remembering the names from my students, and they're between 50 and, and 100, depending how many classes I have. But God, here we read, he made and determined the number of the stars, and he gives them their name. And that's how great and how powerful God is. But God is not just great and powerful in, in this huge, massive universe, but he's also, um, his power is also seen in the dead details of life. So I have a picture here from, from a cell. And we, as human beings, are made out about, uh, um, I don't know, 1 and 14 zeros. That's the number of the amount of cells we have. I don't know. In, in German, it's actually a billion, but you would say it different in English. I didn't have a translator, so just also a massive number of cells that we are made out of. And we know that God didn't just make this, but also he upholds, he holds the whole universe together, and he holds us as human beings together. And if he would just snap his fingers, and we would all, we would all die. That's his power that he has, but he lets us live. He lets us live to see his glory. So that's one reason that Psalm 146 gives us. We can put our trust in God. Our hope is in the Lord, our God. Why? Because he made heaven and earth. He's all-powerful. And he's powerful and sovereign over our lives as well. We can trust him and we can know that if we put our trust in, in his sovereign power, that he will lead us to eternity. A second reason is found also in verse 6. 
It says there, he keeps faith forever. Or you could say, um, he is faithful forever. And I have here a picture of Abraham. Why? Because the Jew, he would immediately think of the faithfulness of God through the covenant that he made with Abraham. In Genesis 18, we read about God making a covenant with Abraham. And back then, the Jews, what they did is they took different animals and they would cut them in half and they would put the two halves on the floor. And then both parties who, who made a covenant together to able to conceal that covenant, that contract, they would walk through these cut up animals um, and that would be a sign of, I want to keep my promise, and both parties want to keep their promise. And if one party breaks the promise, um, he shall or she shall die, just like these animals die. And so Abraham does the same. God tells him, cut these animals in half. But before Abraham goes through these animals, God puts him to sleep. And God himself, with fire, goes through these animals and what he wants to say is, I know that you, Abraham, and all the ones who are going to come after you, you don't have the capability to actually uphold this covenant. You will all fail. And we see in the Old Testament how everyone failed. Even David, a man after God's heart, failed. But God, who is faithful, he will keep his promise. And the ones that he calls to him, the ones who trust in him, he won't let go. He won't break his covenant. So he is faithful forever. And it's, it's so interesting to see that this, this verse, this information that God is faithful forever, is actually in verse 6. And if you count the Hebrew words together, you will notice that this verse is pretty much in the middle of the text. And I learned at university, and you probably all learned that as well, that if you write a text, there's a certain outline you have to follow. You give an introduction, you give a thesis statement, then there's the body with your arguments, and in the end you give a conclusion. And so the summary, the most important points you give in the summary at the end, in the conclusion. But the Jews, they have a different outline, especially when it comes to, to poetry. And mostly, if you read the Psalms, like the, 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 the center argument or the center information that, the peop that you as a reader should pick up on is in the center of the psalm. And it's this verse here. God is faithful forever. You can trust God. You can trust God with your life. You know he will, he will help you in their, in their difficult circumstances and he will help you not only in this life but also in the life that will come after this in, etern in eternity. So that's the second reason. Then the third reason why we can trust God is in verse, found in verse 7. God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. And a Jew, a scholar from the Old Testament, reading this would immediately go to the Exodus, to that story that we all know from Sunday school, where the suffering Jews under the oppression of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh actually experienced how God set them free. He sets prisoners free. And Orthodox Jews celebrate the Exodus um, during Passover, 
And they start with a seder evening. In the evening, they have a seder evening. They have a, 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 t- a plate with different items, various foods on them. And they eat these foods. And these foods have mer- like a metaphorical meaning. For instance, they eat, so- uh, they eat salt water, horseradish, and salad. Not really a tasty combination. I would prefer a nice steak or, or sushi. But they eat salt water. They, they, they take the salad, put it in the salt water, and put some horseradish on it, and then they would eat it. And what happens if you drink salt water or if you eat horseradish? Uh, it starts to burn your eyes or your, it burns your brains out, horseradish, if, especially when it's, it's, uh, when it's hot. And so the children do that, and they start to tear up. And then they ask the parents, Mom, Dad, what, this, what does this supposed to mean? And then the parents would answer them and say, 3,000 years ago, our nation um, were slaves and they suffered and they shed a lot of tears. But God, who was merciful and faithful, led them out of Egypt into the promised land. And so we have three reasons here that why we can trust God. We can trust God because he's sovereign, he's powerful. We can trust God because he's faithful And we can trust God because he leads us out of Egypt, out of our slavery, into the promised land. And what does that mean now for us? And that would be my my next point. For us, we, we, we know the New Testament. And we know how God ultimately, ultimately frees his people. And he frees them through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we all are, in a sense, like the Israelites, we are captive in our own sin, in our own transgressions, and we all need saving from ourselves and from our sins. And how does God do that? We don't experience an exodus like the Jews did 3,000 years ago, but he actually sent his son, Jesus Christ, to free us. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the following, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set free those who are oppressed. Those are very similar words to um, compare to Psalm 146. Jesus came to save us as a people. We can't cheat death. And we know from the New Testament that death is like the ultimate enemy. And it all awaits us. And in a sense, we are like the Jews, captive under um, the domination of sin and the devil. We are like the teenage, uh, teenagers in the horror movie, Final Destination. If you haven't seen it, I don't encourage you to see that. I've seen it long ago, I've repented, but I can use it here as an analogy. We are like these teenagers in Final Destination. It's these teenagers um, supposed to die on a plane or something, but they don't. But even though they don't die in a plane crash, they die in different ways. And in the end, everyone's dead in the movie. And so in a way, we are like those people. Every one of us has a final destination, and it's death. And without having Christ to save us from that, we will, um, we will experience eternal punishment. We won't, if we don't live our lives with God in this life, we won't live our, live our, 
live our lives with God in eternity. But God, gracious as he is, sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and took our deserved punishment upon him, upon himself. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is John 3.16. And it says there, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, and in Greek, pistis actually means trust, so whoever trusts in him will not perish but have eternal life. So what does that mean? How do you trust in God and what do you get from that? What it means is that there is no fear in death. There is absolutely no reason to be worried about getting old, about losing your abilities, about losing control. The Bible encourages us to trust Jesus, to mean to give up our control, the control we didn't have anyways in the first place, and, and trust our lives, give, him, give our lives to Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in the finished work of the cross. On the cross, God destroyed sin. And instead of destroying us, he destroyed actually his only son. That's how loving and kind and grace, graceful God is. And we are to trust in him. And I want to finish with a, with a, a metaphor that I've learned actually in, in English class, how to trust. And I want to first tell you how most people, what they put their trust in and how we supposed to put our trust in Christ. We looked at last semester at um, a moral play from the Middle Ages. And these moral plays are supposed to help people to live a godly life. And unfortunately, we know that the, the church from ancient times through the Middle Ages somehow went astray. And a different gospel was preached. Um, a wrong theology crept into the church. And so that this wrong theology would be not only preached because most people, they, they couldn't read the Bible so they wouldn't go to church, but they would have like moral plays, morality plays on bandwagons that would go from city to city. And one of these plays was called Every Man. And every man was played by, by a person and should actually represent mankind. And so every man walks around on the stage, people are watching, knowing, okay, that guy, that's actually me. He represents me. And he's on his way uh, to, to a party when suddenly death appears. Death is also a, fi uh, a figure. And death comes to him and says, I will take you. You will die soon. And that's something that we all know. We will die sooner or later. And so the, um, every man is shocked and he doesn't know what to do. So knowledge comes up, another character, and tells him, you know, Good deeds, you haven't done them. Good deeds is dead somewhere lying in, in a ditch. And so every man goes to good deeds and wakes her up. And what does he do? He tries to do good deeds all his life. In that sense, he's trying to prove to God when he confronts him in the end, after he, when he dies, that he did enough good deeds so he will be able to get into heaven. And so he walks around, does good deeds all his life. And other characters like strength and beauty and five wits, they come along with him. And when he's young, he has strength. When he's young, he has beauty, he has five wits. 
But as he grows older, strength leaves him, five wits, like the five senses, they leave him, beauty leaves him. In the end, only good deeds is left over. And when he dies, good deeds stands up and goes to God and tells him what, he's, what he has done in his life. And then the play ends. And so the people that are watching, they're not sure. We don't know. Did every man make it? And so if you transfer for that to ourselves, um, the, the, the audience, they were supposed to be scared. They were not supposed to know exactly if they're going to make it. And what the church did is to encourage them, just do good deeds, but you can't be sure if it's enough. And the church encouraged, actually, people to trust in their good deeds because good deeds is the only thing that's going to be there when you're in front of God. And I've, I'm doing my PhD at a, at a Catholic university, and I have a lot of Catholic friends, and they still believe that. They still believe that your good deeds will be able, probably able to save you. And when I go to a party, um, this other party I went to, uh, a home, a home um, homecoming party, this girl comes up to me and asks me and says, well, you're, the, you're a pastor of some sort, so tell me, I'm a nurse, I'm helping people, I will go to heaven, right? And I said, well, do you trust Jesus? And she said, no. I said, well, then you won't. And she's like mad at me and everything, her pretty face was all full of wrinkles and I, I'm trying to look for chocolate to calm her down, I didn't find anything. But that's actually our thinking. We put our trust in our deeds, in something that we do, so we can actually go before God and he will let us in. But we all know that that's, that's a wrong view. And the Bible is crystal clear, telling us that we won't make it into heaven when we trust ourselves, when we trust our ability, when we trust what we did. No good deed will save us. The only thing that will save us is when we put our trust, not in ourselves, but in the finished work of Christ. And when I end this sermon with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I pray that these words will have an effective power of your life. Even though if you might be a Christian for a long time, we're always going to go somehow astray. And we always tend to put our trust in something else and find our joy and our satisfaction in something else and something other than God. So let us put our trust now in God. Let us put our trust into the finished work of Christ. And it is there where you find forgiveness, where you find joy, peace, and where you find eternal life. Amen. I will pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing word. And I thank you for Psalm 146. If you just reflect on it for a couple of minutes, it's, it's so full of amazing messages for us. I thank you that you are a God who can be trusted. I thank you that you are a God who is mighty in power, who has absolutely everything under control, even though we might not always see it or, or feel feel it. And I just pray that we might, that our faith might be renewed this evening, 
that our faith in you might be strengthened. That when we open your word and study your word, that it can um, affect us, transform us. And I pray for everyone here who hasn't put their trust in you, Lord, that they may do that. Be gracious to them. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Transform them. That they don't trust themselves, but trust in you. Amen.